Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Politics as Usual. This week we have Alistair Burt, the former Foreign Office Minister and Conservative MP who left Parliament in December at the last election. Alistair is rare amongst politicians at Westminster in that it's difficult to find anyone who's got a nasty word to say about him. He was, and still is, highly regarded across all the political parties, both as a person and a politician. He's been in and out of ministerial posts during his parliamentary life, including two stints at the Foreign Office, which we talk about at some length during the podcast. And it was when he was reappointed as Minister for the Middle East in uh, 2017 that one of my friends who works at the Foreign Office said, it's nice to have somebody not only knows what they're doing, but he's also nice to people as well. Um, you'll hear during our conversation uh, why people have this view of Alistair. Uh, we start with a brief discussion of what it's like to be chucked out of the Conservative Party because of your views on Europe. Alistair was one of the 20 or so MPs to have the whip removed because of his opposition to a no-deal exit at the, in the autumn of last year. And along with Hilary Benn, was the author of the bill to prevent a no-deal. Uh, Europe clearly remains an issue of deep principle for him. His reaction, although at the time it was measured, as you'll hear, there's clearly a lot of frustration and anger at being ejected from a party... Uh, that he originally joined when he was a teenager. Uh, and as he points out, this sort of intolerance of other people because of their views is how McCarthyism started. Uh, the larger part of our conversation is about how being brought up in Bury on the outskirts of Manchester led to what he calls the only sensible option of joining the Conservative Party, what it was like being elected as an MP in 1983 at the height of Thatcherism, and how the economic policies of that government affected communities like those in Bury. As you'll hear, at one point I asked him about the effects of the mass unemployment caused by the decline of traditional industries in places like Manchester during the 1980s. And as he's speaking about trying to help men who come, came to his constituency surgeries, often in their 50s, who suddenly found themselves out of work for the first time and with no prospect of getting a, another job, the emotion overcomes him and he just pauses for a moment. And as I was sat there, I could see him visualising those meetings and the despair that went with them. And it's clearly as powerful now for him as it was then, almost 40 years on. Often a pause like that says more than any number of words would. And it's this sort of response that probably separates politicians driven by a sense of principle from the rest. But uh, we also talk about other things. What it's like to lose your seat, as we did with Stephen Twigg last week. Alistair lost his seat uh, in Bury in 1997 but returned in 2001 and have a meandering chat about life at Westminster including running marathons, parliamentary football, uh, being on Harringay Council with Jeremy Corbyn in the early 1980s and starting life in Parliament on the same day as Tony Blair. As you'll hear he thought one of them would become Labour leader, not both. Uh, it was a hugely enjoyable discussion with a man who clearly loved being a politician and who I'm pleased to say is joining GPG to work with us on a number of projects across the Middle East. And for our part, we are delighted to have him. Hope you enjoy. I'll be back in about an hour. I guess to start with, um, I was very struck... Uh, you, you delivered a speech in, in Parliament in September. Um, I'm not sure whether it was your last speech, but it was after you'd lost the whip. Yeah. It was very passionate. You sounded very angry. Um, and I just wondered how you felt now. Now you're out of, of Parliament. Um, how you feel now? I suppose I feel more considered, but I, I don't regret feeling angry at the time. And there's still elements about what has gone on that have made me feel uh, angry. I think I was... I was angry about a whole variety of things at the time that I think um, uh, weren't just of the moment but have longer, mm. longer lasting reach. Uh, one is the sense that um, uh, you can be persecuted in the Conservative Party for having a non-establishment view mm -hmm. uh, and threatened with purging. I was particularly angry with that word used by Owen Paterson in a tweet, uh, never to my knowledge 
rejected by any of the, the party leadership. Purge is a word that matters yeah. in political history. We're all aware of what purges meant. And whereas I never feared someone coming with a knock at the door at three o'clock in the morning uh, or anything sinister like that, it was a clear sense that your views are not welcome and therefore you and those like you have to go. Fine, if you want to diminish the breadth of the Conservative Party base, um, uh, you're welcome to do so. But my challenge to my colleagues was, what's next? Yeah. What's the next item of right-wing populism that will be uh, satisfactory for some, but deemed to be um, uh, of sufficient import that anyone who doesn't share it has to go? And that was the challenge. I think the second thing I was angry about was a very practical thing, that having supported uh, Theresa May's withdrawal agreement and therefore voted to leave the European Union, thus accepting the result of a referendum that I had uh, argued uh, against mm. leaving the EU. I accepted it. And for many months, I found myself voting to leave the EU when people like Owen Paterson, Ian Duncan-Smith, uh, Priti Patel, Theresa Villiers, a whole series of others, were voting not to leave the EU. And at the end of it all, when we got to this September, I find them in government uh, and in the cabinet for having brought down the previous government, uh, and I got sacked. Did you feel it was? <clears throat> I mean, because I, I don't know whether you explicitly said it, but you certainly alluded to almost a McCarthyite witch hunt at that at that time. Um, I did. I, 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 the illusion was the uh, the great film from uh, George Clooney, yeah. um, uh, "Good Night and Good Luck," yeah. which I think is a brilliant film. Uh, it's a great film in its own right, but it, it shows, as always, the risk, the risk that even in the best-run, most democratic institutions, where the thin end of the wedge looks very thin indeed compared yeah. to what, what might actually happen, and you're a long way from it, it's just a warning, and I think it's a great film. Did you, I mean, did you feel <clears> like <throat> that was the end of the, 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 the party, or perhaps Parliament as a whole, perhaps politics had changed so much that this was the point at which you needed to go and do something else? Uh, well, a certain amount has changed since September. Mm. Uh, and although I think some of the items that I was upset about stand longer-term scrutiny and are warnings, I think things have settled to a degree. I also find the Prime Minister's remarks about uh, people who voted to remain and looking forward you know, quite reassuring. I, I think there's been some time, and I, I want to believe that that will be that will be the case. Um, uh, it, the the reason for going was was multifold. One, it was a a, a reaction, but a considered reaction to having the whip removed, and knowing therefore the consequence was immediately my local association had to go into let's choose another candidate mm -hmm. mode, as happened for others. Um, and my association had been absolutely brilliant with me. My chairman was very supportive. My association, uh, although the majority of them must have voted leave, were nothing but supportive. I didn't want that to go through. I also didn't want, after 32 years of being a member of parliament and 50 years of being a member of the Conservative Party, uh, I didn't want to be told uh, whether I was fit or not to stand for the Conservative Party by somebody else. Mm. Uh, that was my choice, my association's choice. Uh, and I thought, I don't want to be in this position. So I thought the best thing to do was to choose to leave. Um, I'm 64 years of age. Uh, I'd had a wonderful career. I'd done all the things that I wanted to do. Uh, and it was a good time for me to go and leave an opportunity for somebody else, make it easy for the association, easy for my Conservative voters. Um, and I had no wish to carry on. Uh, I, I don't want to be the awkward sod at the, at the back of the Commons benches uh, unhappy with the way things are going. I've seen some of those over the years, and it's not good. And I, I felt, and, and I think I said in, 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 in previous interviews, I would turn into the MP I didn't want to be. Mm. My, I, I would be shaped by this, and my upset would be sufficient that I would, I would start to behave irrationally about the whole thing, and I didn't want to be. Europe is important to me, but lots of other things are important. But this whole business would turn me in, and I would see colleagues standing up, spouting off. I would hear more anti-European rhetoric, as we are going to hear over the next year, no matter mm. what the Prime Minister's commitment may be. Uh, certain colleagues just won't be able to resist it um, and the nonsense. Uh, and at some stage, I would have done something unfortunate. So it's best <laughs> not to be there. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm tempted to ask you what the, what, what the unfortunate thing might be, but perhaps we'll come back to that. Um, um, so where did it all start? How did you, I mean... For me. Yeah, how, how, what, what tempted you into politics in the first place? It started in this uh, wonderful town called Bury, uh, just outside I've, Manchester. I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. You've heard yeah. of it, and everyone's heard of it. <laughs> Everyone's heard of its wonderful football team, FA Cup winners in 1993 and cruelly <laughs> robbed of league status by some conspiracy somewhere along the line, which is awful, but we'll leave that be. Um, I was born and brought up in this little town. My father's a family doctor. My mother had been a teacher, uh, but she was, like many doctors' wives, working uh, for, my, for my dad, doing all the things that uh, a doctor's partner does uh, these days. And uh, I, uh, the town politically was very much a two-party town. It was Labour or Conservative. Mm. Um, there wasn't a strong Liberal influence, unlike Bolton or Rochdale. It was just one of those towns where it was Labour or Conservative. It was broadly Conservative because Bury was a town of skilled industrial workers, finishers uh, of the cotton trade. It was high owner occupation and on the demographics and, and the, uh, the basic stats, Bury was more likely to be Conservative than not. Mm. And it was. So uh, this was, if you like, C2DE, was it? Or was it also ABC2? No, no. uh, well, it, it, it was a nice demo. I never went in, into it. It was, it was, traditional, it was traditional Northern Conservative. Yeah. And we're told okay. these are the places that we've won back. They've always been there. Patriotic, working class Conservatives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Harvey and Bather or Jean Blondel, voters, parties and leaders, when we were kids... A third of the working class votes for Winston Churchill and votes Conservative. Mm. It was one of those. And uh, I was brought up in this town. I had an early awareness of politics. I'm not William Hague. I didn't take Hansard to bed. <laughs> but I, I read the newspapers. And there was an election in 1964 when I was nine. So I remember that. A formative influence, strangely, was Telstar. Because in 1964, also, the first live pictures from the United States, which included mm. a presidential election year, including conventions. And I saw grown-ups behaving absolutely appallingly and no one minding at all. Uh, big hats, balloons, we welcome favourite son of X. I thought this was just brilliant. And we had an election and people behaved as they do in elections and shouting everything. And I thought, this looks great. I'm interested in this. And I was always interested in how things worked, how society worked, what representatives did. My parents were not uh, political. They were broadly conservative. Well, they were conservative, but they weren't involved in the party or anything. Um, and at 15 years of age, I stood as the conservative candidate for... Uh, the election, 1970 election, at my school. Right. Um, got in touch with the local party. Uh, a family friend was a local councillor, so I got literature about it. And I started to go to Broad Street. How did that election go, that first election go? I won. Oh, OK. Uh, Berry Grammar School was always likely what to... What was your manifesto? ...elect a Conservative. Uh, vote for Ali Burt. <laughs> that was it? Yeah. It's always been that, really. <laughs> it's not very, very much, really. Um, uh, five foot two, Ali Burt doesn't look down on you. Uh, <laughs> That was, that was the lie. Um, but I started going to the Conservative offices uh, regularly and get involved. And a significant, uh, of significant importance is in, most, in all our major political parties. Um, not many people join. And if you work hard, there's a real meritocracy. If you work hard, do what you set out to do, you'll get a chance to get on. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there's a young Conservative movement. And I got responsibility early. Uh, and I enjoyed it. Then we had the 1974 election, by which stage I'd finished my schooling, um, but I was still at school because it was the Oxbridge third, third, third year sixth form entry, mm. so I had nothing to do between January and March. So I could work full-time in the February 74 election, which the Conservative Party, Michael Fiddler, won by 378 votes. So it was a tight, tight election, seat, yeah. brilliant, and I was hooked by that stage. So it was working with... Uh, friends of, of the family, everyone knew my dad uh, in the town. So I was working with people I knew. I was broadly a, a conservative because the Conservative Party was pro-European, uh, stood for the individual against mm. the power of the uh, trade unions, uh, multilateral disarmament uh, uh, and NATO, not unilateral disarmament and CND. So I found myself a, a natural home as a conservative. Uh, and that was it. So it goes way back. Was it? And at that time, I mean, I guess... 
Did, 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 did the Conservative Party and the Conservative policies you were involved in just look like the... Was it portrayed as, if you like, the sensible choice for... Given what was going on at the time? I was 15 when I joined, 18 in 1974. Um, you're limited in your perceptions, let, let's be honest. My family was Conservative. My Auntie Betty was Conservative. Yeah. Any thought that I, vote, I would say, well, I think this Mr Wilson's a nice chap, yeah. um, I, would have been, I would have been thrown out of the brownies. It, it, <laughs> it just didn't come up. The fam, you know, family and friends were Conservative. Uh, and you know, there was a conservative professional class in, in, in the town, and it, but it was sensible. We had Edward Heath as, as leader, meritocratic, grammar school boy, uh, humble background. Uh, but even then, I think I was a passionate European. Yeah. And I was a passionate European because at the same time as being brought up on Telstar and uh, the front page of the newspaper and the back pages, um, I was brought up on All Our Yesterdays, Brian Inglis's uh, series uh, about the war and uh, it was a program that always began 25 years ago and 25 years ago from when I was growing up uh, at a certain stage were in the war years so my childhood involved a regular uh, you know weekly view of newsreels of the second world war and I appreciated very early uh, that I was very lucky um, there wasn't a war uh, the war had been fought uh, and I saw pictures of Europe completely devastated. Mm. And I knew that something had happened since then and, uh, and, and the time I was living in. Um, and people were determined that it should never happen again. And I thought, this is broadly a good thing. And the Conservative Party, you know, and everybody stood for uh, an end of that sort of conflict. But I saw Europe and what was happening in Europe, uh, even at a young, tender age, as important, bringing people together and... Uh, therefore not having the risk of war in Europe anymore. Mm. So it, it all tied together, and that was why I was both a supporter of Edward Heath when we came to leadership in 1975, um, although I couldn't vote, I wasn't a member of the party, I think, at that stage, and of course the M M members of the party didn't vote. But it was already going on in my mind at that mm. stage. But for me, it was just a straightforward choice, and the Labour Party had other policies. Uh, it wanted to abolish my school. Right. Uh, the Labour Party wanted to do away the with the direct, direct right. grant system right. that I felt was so important in bringing all sorts of uh, boys to my school. I had no knowledge of where boys came from. I had no knowledge of who was on a scholarship or who wasn't. Um, every street in Bury had somebody who they knew had gone to Bury Grammar School. Mm. Uh, and it just wasn't an issue. And then the political party for political ideology wanted to, uh, wanted to wreck it. And that made me feel very angry. And was it? I mean, in terms of what what drove your, you know, your interest in you explained, you know, the Conservatives were in many ways the sensible choice, the only choice um, for you. But in terms of actually becoming more active in politics, you, I mean, you talk passionately about Europe. Was what was it that, that drove your that activism, if you like? Why did you want to? Did you go into politics with a sense of purpose aside from? adults behaving appallingly, um, was there a sense that you wanted to... The politics yeah. was there a way to achieve certain things? Was it a reaction to stuff you'd seen locally or...? It was... Um, I, was a, I was a born representative. I was a born talker. I was a form captain, house captain, school captain, president of the University Law Society, uh, helped run... Uh, head boy, Oxford. I understand, as well. Sorry, head, head boy. boy. Uh, Oxford uh, Legal Advice Service. I was an advocate, uh, and I was an advocate for an early age, from an early age. Uh, there were a lot of things I couldn't do, but I could talk, um, and I and I, I had a, I had passions. I had a cause. My mother always thought I was a communist because, despite everything I said, uh, I would take up issues at the dinner table that people had rights to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, and I always got on well with my local Labour Party because there is a corner of all of us, I think, that worries about things that socialists hold very dear and very important. Mm. Equality being one, fairness, rights, justice being others. I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to convey in my life that I could be interested in that and in a party that I wanted to be also associated with issues such as that. So even at a relatively early age, uh, the reason I became a lawyer, uh, and I read law at university and became mm. a solicitor, and I did 
legal advice at university. I did charitable legal advice in London when I qualified because I was working on a high street firm, but I went to the Catherine Lowe settlement in Battersea where my firm offered free legal advice. I've always done that. Mm. And that was picking up people in pretty wretched situations who didn't have advocates, didn't have advocacy, and being a counsellor, which I became in 1982 in Haringey, and wanting to stand for Parliament, was a natural extension of that. I, I, I wanted to represent people. I was also heavily influenced by my dad. My dad's a family doctor, and he was a committed family doctor, and a wonderful doctor. And he looked after his people, and really cared for them. I wanted a job like his, I couldn't do medicine because I can't stand the sight of blood uh, and I wasn't good at science. But I wanted a job that fully absorbed me as Mm. his did. And I couldn't see it in much else. Being a lawyer was partly that, but wasn't quite the same. But being an MP, being a counsellor, that was was different. And that's what drove me. I wanted the sort of life where I was fully immersed and engaged in the lives of others by being their representative. And, I mean, so how early did the idea of actually becoming an MP form in your mind? Difficult to say. I was only asked directly about it when I was being interviewed to be a councillor in uh, in Haringey, uh-huh. where my interview panel said, uh, well, it's all right putting you up for the council, but you won't be here very long, will you? Uh, are you going to stand for the list? And I said, what list? Uh, because I'd never been through the process or thought about it. Uh, and they said, well, you, you know, there's a strong chance of you wanting to be a member of parliament and i thought about it i suppose from that moment onwards so and what prompted that was 1982 what prompted was the because you you were talking about this um what 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 prompted you to become a councillor then in the first instance i wondered whether it was a stepping stone to becoming a politician but from what you said it sounds like it wasn't it was just my wife to be was the chairman of hornsey young conservatives right okay and wanting to be a councillor was a great way to stay very close to Eve Twight <laughs> and to, um, uh, to be involved with her. Right. Now, I, I arrived in London October 1980, uh, and I'd been off politics for a couple of years because I hadn't passed my law exams first time. Right. And my mother withdrew privileges of being doing anything in my spare time until I got my okay. qualifications. And then I moved from Manchester, where I'd done articles, down to London. And I found myself in London. And the uh, move to London was for? Most of my friends from university okay. were in London. Okay. Uh, and I found myself spending weekends there. And I, I thought, I want to spread my wings. Um, I love Bury, I love Manchester. But, I, I, you know, you, you want to test something out yeah. at that age. So I went to London for professional, uh, professional reasons. I wanted to uh, see more of my friends from university who were living down there. And I wanted to try a different environment for law. So I went down there and I found myself living by chance in um, the Horns Wood Green constituency. The GLC elections were coming up in the summer of 1981. Mm-hmm. And I'm a political animal and I read about it. I thought it was really interesting. I phoned my local association saying, look, I've done a bit of work in the past in this northern marginal seat. I'm living here now. Can I come and help? That was it. Oh, and with the, I mean, I, I, my experience of politics in the, in the Labour Party was that, you know, if um, you went along to a meeting, the chances are you'd be volunteered to do something. Correct. I mean, was there an element exactly of that? Exactly the same. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. And we're all the same, aren't we? You turn up at anything and you're asked, will you stand for X, Y and Z yeah. to hook you in? Um, but I, I had no issue with that. I, I joined the local Young Conservative, joined my local branch. But as I say, uh, my future wife was chairman of the local Young Conservatives. And, you know, when you're 20... Three twenty-four. These things make a bit of a difference yeah, in life. Yeah, yeah. And um, Haringey is Haringey. interesting, Fab. Um, because it was for those people listening who perhaps don't remember the early eighties. Um, it was um, almost a cartoon of a um, uh, a local council in many ways, in that it was the it was seen as the, the, a bastion of the quotes loony loony left, and. You were uh, contemporaries with Jeremy Corbyn, I understand, at, at that time. Absolutely. Um, I often said if Haringey hadn't existed, the sun would have invented it. <laughs> it, it, was, it was classic. Haringey Left was part of the London Labour Left organisation, uh, who published a magazine, London Labour Briefing, that very kindly told you what was happening in each of the councils. And if you're on a certain part of the cycle you knew from the motions that were in London Labour briefing for other councils it was going to turn up at Haringey um, and 
uh, there were three groups on Haringey Council. There was the Labour group that ran the council, and these were very committed councillors, uh, chairs of committees. Uh, Haringey is classically an outer London borough with inner London characteristics, mm. housing, education, crises, uh, all sorts of issues, uh, huge population from elsewhere, lots of languages spoken. Uh, then there was the Conservative opposition, which there was at that time, about 17 of us, out of a council of 60. And then there was the uh, Labour left group who didn't run the council but thought that they should. Uh, and they were trade union dominated and they were led by Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Grant uh, and one or two other councillors. And their job was to oppose the, uh, the, the local Labour council, shades of some years later. Jeremy is, is unchanged as a, an anti-establishment individual and it doesn't matter whether the establishment is Labour, Tory or anything else um, and that was where I cut my teeth and it was fascinating uh, debates about Haringey issues were incredibly short you had a full council meeting on a Monday night every month or six weeks or so and you got the council business out of the way very quickly in order to get onto the real issue which were the, the big headline debates which were about Chile about Mrs Thatcher, uh-huh. about nuclear disarmament, about all sorts of things that Haringey Council could do bugger all about, <laughs> uh, but could get at the Tory government. And London Labour left were absolutely in the Hatton-Liverpool mould. If you can get the people out on the streets, we will bring Maggie Thatcher down. Did they genuinely believe this? Yes, I think they did. You'll have to ask them. But they certainly acted as though. It, what, what they needed was the people to rise. And Liverpool, which you know went on and I got into government, I was working with Kenneth Baker in the Department of Environment some years later. Oh, yes. Um, uh, the, the Liverpool left wanted the commissioners brought in. They wanted to run their council down so badly that commissioners were appointed so that Westminster would take over Liverpool and the people would come out on the streets. Right. You bet they did. And, and, yeah, it was all about what can we do to bring down Thatcher? Right. And the schools needed help and attention. Housing needed help and attention. But did they care? That group, no, not very much. I'm assuming when you met Jeremy Corbyn, you didn't immediately think, well, there's a future leader of the Labour Party. Uh, no, I didn't. Um, but we always got on because everything said about Jeremy in terms of his passion for his bit of politics uh, wasn't clouded by any personal unpleasantness towards uh, people who... He didn't consider part of the problem, really, on Haringey Council. We weren't in a position of influence. Um, and he was always perfectly courteous, and we, we got on. Um, I suppose there would have been one or two things, probably, where we would have seen eye to eye, um, you know, going back to the justice, things like that. There were things happening in the world that I thought were pretty bad and unfair. Um, I was uh, anti-apartheid, uh, mm-hmm. for example, at a very early stage, and that would have chimed with, uh, with him as well. Um, but effectively, the Conservative opposition was irrelevant to the running of Haringey, but it was damaging. We were led by a wonderful bloke called Douglas Smith, whose talent was humour. And if there's one thing the Labour left lack, it's a sense of humour, mm. as perhaps you know. And they can be pricked very easily. And there's nothing worse than being laughed at. If you're shouted at, if people disrespect you and all sorts of things, you can cope with that in politics. But if you're laughed at, it's worse. And... Douglas was terrific, and he would leave the the serious councillors alone. He would go for the hardliners who had come up with some ridiculous motion or something, and he'd leave them spitting. He was very good, and and Jeremy used to rise to the bait regularly, as I remember. But there was never any personal unpleasantness. We got elected to Parliament on the same day in 1983, and we've remained, you know, on on speaking terms uh, and decent speaking terms ever since. Um, and I was just about to come to this exactly. This uh, so in 1983 you get elected um, into um... story of that story of that <laughs> um, Berry North, Berry and Radcliffe constituency mm. in 1979. Mrs T's win mm-hmm. should have gone Conservative. It didn't. It stayed Labour by 38 votes. Right. So it's now the country's tightest marginal. Berry right. North. It, it these things just keep yeah. on going. Berry and Radcliffe didn't turn Conservative. And the reason local Tories said it didn't turn Conservative was two things. Firstly, there was a very good local Labour MP called Frank White, uh-huh. who became a good friend. Uh, and secondly, we had a candidate from outside the area. We had a young man called Peter Le Bosquet, who was from the Midlands, but had a Norman-French name. 
and it was reckoned that you only needed 18 people to say, I don't want a bloody Frenchman representing me, shades of referendum to come, uh, and they weren't going to vote. And, and it was said, as they left the drill hole at the count in 1979, next time, the first one with a flat cap and a whippet walking past the window that's the candidate. And I was the candidate with the flat cap and a whippet. So, uh, I don't believe you actually had a flat cap and a whippet on. I've got a flat cap, but right, okay. I, I didn't have a whippet. Um, <laughs> but uh, what had happened then was, and it just got, these little things make lives. Yeah. So it, how did, but how did in, in Harringay, in Har- we were in Hornsey and Wood Green. Our MP was Hugh Rossi, who was junior minister at the Department of Social Security. At party conference time, in the old days, you put forward motions from your association. We put forward a motion which may have had the hand of a special advisor to Hugh Rossi in it, okay. under my name, which surprisingly was chosen for debate at the main party conference. Okay. I was the name attached to the motion, and I uh, put forward a motion at the 1982 party conference as a councillor on the health service in the middle of a health service dispute. Up in the crowd were a group of people from Perry. Right, okay. And they said, we know who that is. Right. And we're looking for a candidate for the new seat of Berry North because Berry and Radcliffe had changed in the boundary uh, uh, changes and two new seats had been created. They had not yet chosen their candidates and were just about to. And who should pop up on the platform? But Perfect timing. And, and, as I say, uh, the chain of coincidence was extraordinary. Indeed. Um, did you go into that? I've been mean, saying it was a marginal. How confident were you of winning, or weren't you? Uh, no, it wasn't. Um, everyone said on paper, on, on demographics and on the trends, but I was uh, up against a, a very good, very well-regarded, experienced local MP yeah. uh, who was a, a nice man and a good man. And on a person-to-person basis, I shouldn't have won. But as we know, uh, the swing counts. And I also knew when I, when I won, you win with the swing, you'll lose with the swing. And I knew I had Berry for a certain length of time until um, things changed. And how did it feel, I mean, going into Parliament for the first time, I mean, both, both politically and just, I mean, going, becoming a member of Parliament for the first time, um, whether, uh, interested whether it was what you expected and what surprised you most, but also all the views you've, you've described um, would be, I guess, moderate within the Conservative Party, especially the Conservative Party at that time. Um, you're looking at me quizzically. Um, I... Uh, I, mean, it, it, it's, I mean, this is 36 years ago, yeah. so quite honestly, it really is hard. I was very comfortable in the Conservative Party. I, was, uh, I had always been a member of the Tory Reform Group. Uh, I was about to come what was known as a wet or something like that. I'd seen the early part of Mrs Thatcher's government. I'd chosen to remain a Conservative in 1981, Geoffrey Howe's budget, when the world seemed to be collapsing. Yeah, yeah. Because although... I didn't know enough and wasn't sure whether it was the right thing. I knew I was still a Conservative, but I wanted to be the sort of Conservative that was being tempted towards the, uh, the SDP. Hmm. And okay. I said, I didn't want to do this. I want to stay in the Conservative Party. So when I came into Parliament, I had a natural group of friends who were pro-European, uh, socially aware, not sure if monetarist economics was the, uh, was the right way to go. Um, and I fell naturally into that. So... I suppose I was always in that bracket. Mm. I was never one of us um, and never felt uncomfortable not being one of us because I was a, I was a classic, what I considered to be a one-nation conservative, mm. right from the word go. And there was always a home for me and I never felt that there wasn't. I just wonder whether that early period, you saw echoes of that just before you left that level of, of division. Because, yeah. I mean, I, I was young at the time, but I remember it, it was very, you know, it was, Thatcherism was very divisive. Oh, it, it was very, it was very divisive. Uh, and, and of course, uh, yes, indeed, there are echoes of it. Because by the end of her time, as we know, she had become identified with a particular view of Europe. Mm. We will never know, of course, whether Mrs. Thatcher would have voted to come out or stay in. But we'd got to the Bruges speech, no, 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 and all that. And her name had been certainly picked up by those who were anti-European, very mm. clearly anti-European. Um, so that we never got, in my view, we never got over the divide. There's always been a divide in the Conservative Party. It used to be Rhodesia, Hanging, South Africa, uh, 
monetarist economics mm -hmm. and it's always the same group of people on each side mm -hmm. more or less and it became that in relation to to Europe but every now and again we solve it as yeah. we've solved this and no doubt we'll come on to it the ruthlessness of being dealt with in September of course was a good thing for the party and ultimately what the party voters supported and wanted mm. so I can't knock it as a as, as a tactic um, it's a question of whether having done that having cauterized the wound is now the Prime Minister going to make sure that um, everyone is still welcome mm. I think he will I think that's his natural instinct and will providing things don't get really rocky from from here on and they start to look for people to blame then we've got a nice future yeah. but that issue in the Conservative Party the division every part there's no point in being a party unless you've got somebody to have a go at. <laughs> you know, we, we can't all think this. The Labour Party has been like it all that. I presume well, it even happens right. in, yeah. the, in the Liberal Democrats, but there's so few of them, you never know. Um, but for, for the rest of us, of course, being on one wing of your party is part of yeah. being in your party. And I, I never shied away from that. I knew which side of the line I was on. But when the barricades went up, you know, you stood next to... Yeah. Some of the people you weren't necessarily best friends with, because when it comes to "Hey lads, hey," yeah. which is our Lancashire expression, you knew where you were. And I mean, the just the experience of being uh, a member of Parliament for the first time and entering Westminster, um, it's it, I get it's improved in the time that I've been sort of around politics. I can see how uh, the House of Commons has improved the induction of mm. new members. But what was it like just being thrown in? What happened on your first day? Um, I desperately searched for David Trippier, who was the only person I knew in Parliament. David was the MP for Rosendale and Darwin okay. and had uh, uh, also been at my school several years okay. ahead of me. Um, but he was the only person Did I Did you knew. find him? Yes, I found him. Uh, and he took me to his room and he said, you perch here and you don't let anyone move you from this room unless the chief whip himself and me comes and tells you you've got a room. So basically this was an empty office that it you, was, you just it was, squatted in? It was his office that I squatted in, right. and, and he said, you perch yourself there, okay. and that's it. So I, I didn't end up in the cloisters in the first week, or the corridors where people do. It was pretty grim, uh, and it meant that by the time you got any secretary of the citizens, you were a week and a half behind, you had a sack full of mail, literally, mm. because that, of course, people wrote letters mm. in those days. We'll explain these for people who are listening, perhaps. <laughs> um, so you started off already behind and all that. Um, it, it, it was a great experience because, of course, at 28 years of age, all my experiences have been new. I'd, I'd only been a lawyer for four years. Right. You know, I'd been school, university, lawyer, out in the real world a bit, some charity work, been a councillor for a year. Now I was a member of parliament. So I was used to new experiences. So I, I, it, it wasn't going to take me long to get used to this new thing. I was well aware of where I was and how wonderful it was. Uh, and it was great. And it never stopped being great. What was the most difficult part of that, the job in the early years? I mean, yeah, I get the sense you almost immediately thought, right, this is for me. I know, I, yes, I know this is my I job. I did. Uh, I did. I thought this is for me. And I never, I never doubted it. And I still, still don't. Um, it, was, it was absolutely ideal. Because uh, I was representing my hometown. I was representing people I'd grown up with. I was representing my dad's patients. Um, everything just came together in Bury. It was terrific. I, I can't remember what the what the difficulties were. Um, beyond, if you look back at some of the early speeches, I first made a name for myself talking about unemployment mm -hmm. because uh, that uh, industrial town, manufacturing, we were beginning to go through that, well, we were partway through that painful change mm. that at the time... Uh, as we all remember, made people hate the Prime Minister. But in hindsight, absolutely necessary for the country to go through. Could it have been ameliorated? Of course, you could have done a dozen mm. different things. But the fact that the United Kingdom had to move from one base of employment to another was, was clear to people smarter and older than me. But my constituents felt it. I still had factories where hundreds of people worked. And at five o'clock in the afternoon, a half past four, the hooter went and people just descended onto the streets and got mm. on the bus and things like that uh, and those are my childhood uh, memories and um, were still there when I was an MP so uh, I started to see people I started to see men 50 years of age a 
come into the surgery from uh, an industrial background uh, and say, Mr Bird, I'm never going to work again. Uh, your government has put me out of work. Uh, and whatever the truth of that was, they were right in saying they would never go back to what their work was. And they were skilled craftsmen, mm. uh, metal workers, turners, people in the cotton industry still. Um, and it was very hard um, because I was, I was a kid. And here they were. Yeah. Um, and what could you do as, I mean, as the, as the member of parliament? I can, I tell, I can, tell, I can, I can I feel made, the... I made speeches. I made speeches. And I did one. I think Nigel Lawson was the Prime Minister. And, and I, I, the phrase I used was, you know, we don't, you know, we don't expect him to be like Moses out there in the desert tapping for water and water gushing out of jobs. We mm. do expect him actually to be out there bloody well looking. Yeah. And, and I, I was angry because I thought there was a sense that there were elements of the government that didn't understand, didn't empathise. They were, economically, they were right, but they were purists. Uh, and, and they knew, in textbook terms, what had to be done for Britain. Yeah. But some people find it harder to empathise than others. Yeah. And, of course, politically, that's how the Conservative Party was portrayed. Uh, I never felt that people like Mrs Thatcher didn't feel it or didn't understand or weren't sympathetic. But, of course, she had a shell she had to preserve and protect. Um, But I I felt angry on behalf of the people I represented. And that was when I first began to be um, that sort of MP, prepared to speak out on things like unemployment and issues. I mean, I can see just from the conversation now, clearly just recalling this, it's very... Powerful, emotive, and powerful. Yeah. My first, um, my first job, the kids' job before, in between home and university, when I could earn money for a few months before I went to university, was at Benson's of Berry Toffee Factory. Yeah. We made toffee. Uh, I worked with my dad's patients. Um, you know, it was six forty-five in the morning. You got there, you made the toffee, yeah. and uh, I, I, I made friends. And they knew I was interested in politics even then because we just had the seventy-four election and all that. Um, and I, I learned about shop floor solidarity from them. Why they, why they stayed doing a routine job. Because they had to pay their mortgage yeah. and they liked their mates. And these were people who, in a different educational age, might have had more opportunity. But they didn't. Yeah. And I did it for them. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it was mid-90s you came, went into ministerial office for the first time? <laughs> Yes, um, I, I didn't get I didn't get promoted by Mrs. T. Um, apparently, on one stage, she said, "Why does that little man cause me all this trouble?" Well, I was actually jumping back a bit. I mean, given <laughs> I was PPS you, to Ken Baker for five years. I, I can't imagine there would be many MPs in the Conservative Party of your era who clearly felt as passionately about unemployment. Although I might, that may be my Labour Party uh, prism uh, suggesting that. But did you did you stick out in the Conservative Party, standing up for? Exactly the sorts of people you've just described. Um, I became a PPS very early. Right. And uh, that means that you you have a party line to follow. So I became Parliamentary Private Secretary Kent Baker, I think, in 1986, 85 or 86, quite young. And I remember talking to him about it, and, and he said, he said, normally I'd advise someone like you not to be a PPS, but you're very good and we, we, we like you and you'll, you'll learn a lot and all that. But it slightly curtails you. I rebelled even then. Um, I rebelled on Sunday trading and I had to offer my resignation as a PPS because I couldn't support right. Sunday trading. Uh, and I managed to be absent when they put VAT on fish and chips. <sighs> <laughs> you know, I, I, got, you know, I got friends who weren't fish and chips, uh-huh. so I wasn't going to do yeah. that. Uh, and I think eye tests... Right. when they brought in eye tests and things like that. So, um, I, no, there, there, were, there were a few others, but I did things like that. And, uh, how was it, though? Because from what you've described, going back to, to, to Bury and trying to explain what the government of which you remember was doing, and all, but also clearly having an awful lot of sympathy and empathy for the people who were being put out of work, it must have been in many ways an invidious position to, to be in because surely you, you have to go back to the constituency yes. and explain why the, what the government is doing is the right thing to do I didn't believe there was any other answer um, mm-hmm. I'm not a socialist because I don't think socialist economics work um, and sympathetic though I am um, I learned at an early age 
that um, it doesn't come from nowhere um, and, and basic socialist economics I don't think worked. I mean, remember also at the time there were real communist countries floating around and there were elements of the Labour Party still, you know, mouthing support for East Germany and, you know, I love, respect and admire the Soviet Union and stuff like that. And although that wasn't all the Labour Party, of course, there was just an, an element. I, I just didn't think it worked. So mm. intellectually, I think I rationalised that we were doing something that was very difficult. I thought it could be done with more sympathy and more understanding. I probably thought timescales could be a bit longer. Why do you have to do something now? When you, you learn as you get longer in the tooth in politics, sometimes you have to do something pretty quick and pretty brutal. But it seemed very harsh. But I went back to Berry to explain to people because I did not think that there was another answer. And remember at the time, firstly Michael Foote was leader of the Labour Party mm -hmm. and then Neil Kinnock. And I didn't find in my constituents a great belief that they could change the, the picture. When Tony Blair came along, who I'd been at college with, and who I also came into the house on the same day was, yeah. uh, okay. things changed. Uh, because he was somebody I knew from another context, uh, and I thought of, he and Gordon Brown were the two standouts in 83, and I thought, okay. you know, these guys have got it right, and if they can get their act together, we are in big trouble. And then the 92 government, Europe popped up again with Maastricht and all the damage that my friends then did to John Major uh, and all that, and the die was cast. And my, again, my, my feelings about Europe and my strong feelings against my colleagues, who I think, again, not exactly brought much John Major down because I don't think we could have won the election in 97, but certainly they made his defeat much worse mm. and their lack of respect for him uh, and what they went out in Westminster Green and said in order to damage him left me a, a lasting dislike of that group of colleagues. So and, and you lost in, in 97. Yes. Um, and as, you go, as, as you you come with the swing, you go with the swing. Yes. Um, uh, and remember, all MPs, we win our seats, but we lose because of the swing and because of the, yeah. the government and politics. We, we never lose because it's our fault. But it's clearly a job that you loved. I was chat, chatting to Stephen Twigg a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying uh, that, you know, that just the process of losing his seat in 2005 was like being... Uh, both the deceased and one of the bereaved, a bereaved relation at the same time. It, 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 it's, it, I knew it was very, I knew it was very bad because I, I was leaving home. Um, I had, I didn't know at that stage when I lost. What do you do? Am I going to stay in Bury? I realised fairly quickly it was very difficult to be the ex-member of Parliament for Bury yeah. in your hometown. There was no other job that would compare with it, and it was best to leave. But I had to leave. I had to leave my family, my family home. You know, take my wife and, uh, and and children. We had to go and create a new life somewhere else. Mm. I knew I I wasn't going to come back to Bury, and, and made a decision that I thought I, I I should go. I suppose I also made a political decision, calculation, and thought the seat is not going to return to the Conservative Party quickly. Mm. Um, and I, what do I want to do? And I went and worked as a headhunter. Hadn't made up my mind whether I wanted to go back into politics. Didn't move somewhere for that reason, so I wasn't carpet bagging. Uh, and just by chance, um, Bedfordshire came up. Um, and so, but you were back in 2000, 2001. Um, and then I'm going to jump forward slightly. Well, no, better actually, because no, we I'm spent 40 odd minutes yes. talking about Berry. No, exactly. Well, no, it's been fascinating. It's been absolutely yeah. fascinating. I'm going to diverge slightly because I wanted to talk to you about marathons. Yes. Um, because you, you, you've done 10 marathons? 10 London marathons, yeah. And... How did how did this start? Because this was, was this a parliamentary thing as well. No, this started. I've always been a runner. Um, uh, ran at school, uh, school cross country captain. Right. Um, <laughs> although not no, far from. Do, do you have a trophy cabinet at home, which is <laughs> runs along one wall? No, it's got some nice memories. <laughs> but I was the um, I wasn't the best runner, but uh, you know I was the you know just the one who organised and did things. Um, I love running. Uh, always wanted to run a marathon, and. When the London Marathon started, and people will remember this from early days, you, you, you tried to get in it, and it, it was luck whether yeah. you got in or not. Yeah. And one year it was on the, the, the date stamp. I remember queuing at, um, at Mount Pleasant with yeah, a load of other, other folk office, yeah. at sort of you know, midnight, trying to, you handed it in at midnight, hoping it got stamped midnight, and therefore that you got a place in the marathon. That, that didn't work. And then I read that MPs, got into the London Marathon. 
And I thought, that's it. Become an MP and I can <laughs> run in the London Marathon. And I did. Now, now the we've very got first, the, reason, the very right, first okay. year I was an MP, I ran in the London Marathon of 1984. And how was that? It was great. Yeah. Uh, it was. Uh, did you do it on your own or with other MPs? Uh, other MPs, we've always had a small group running at the time. Uh, Simon Hughes, I think Simon Hughes was in it. I, there was, there's always been a small group of colleagues, including the wonderful Mr. Gary Waller. Right. Uh, the late Mr. Gary Waller. Okay. And Gary became a role model because, how can I put this delicately, Gary's shape was not that of Mr. Uh, uh, Mo Farah. Right, okay. Uh, Gary was, was your bloke sitting in the pub uh, on the Saturday night saying... I'll do the marathon tomorrow, <laughs> putting on a pair of shorts and sort of doing it. I right. loved him. Um, but we, we had a good group. And of course, Matthew Paris was right. by far the best. And I ran in the race where Matthew clocked 2.35. Wow. Which is the fastest uh, um, parliamentary That's time and, and a time. very, very good club runner's yeah. time for a marathon. So, yeah, that was the marathon. But we were quite involved with it as MPs because, if you remember, they were doing something at the bottom end of Westminster we, we'd finished first on Westminster. We'd finished on Westminster Bridge originally, and they were doing work at County Hall and on the roundabout. Mm. And they had to move the finish, and they wanted to finish on the Mall, but the Royal Parks and the Crown were not sure about this. So Chris Brasher and others engaged members of Parliament to say, "Can you help us make a case so that we can finish mm. the marathon uh, on the Mall?" And we did. So there's always been a good relationship. A man called Mike Steele in the press gallery was our contact, and he did a wonderful job. He was the liaison between MPs, the marathon uh, runners, and the the authorities. And so we helped the London Marathon get established with its finish route now. Right. So the marathon people have always been very good with us, and we've always had a great relationship with them. And, of course, we, along with many others, have raised... Lots of money, because uh, we've your, always run for... Your other things. sporting passion, I know, is, is football. And um, uh, tell me about Parliament, for people who don't know, explain parliamentary football and the parliamentary football team. The parliamentary football team, which was called the Westminster Wobblers uh, when I first, uh, first joined them, um, is like an oasis, because it's all party, um, both House of Lords and House of Commons, if you can find a member of the House of Lords fit enough and able to play. But we had Jamie Craig Arvin, who played for years for us, a fabulous striker. Um, and uh, it's a sort of enclave where it isn't an unspoken rule you don't talk about politics. You just don't, because mm. you talk football. And you talk about sort of who you're watching and what's going on and how England are doing or how any of the respective nations are doing, depending on where people come from. Uh, and we had a, and, and it, it was just great. And we had some uh, people who had really good skills. Alan Simpson had had trials with Everton uh, when he was he was younger. Uh, he was a good player. Henry, uh, who played for East East Fife uh, 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 um, when he was younger. So he had some players with real skills. And then you had people like me who were, of course, a few years younger than some of the others. So I got on the team uh, and I played up front uh, and, and tucked away a few goals. And who was the, um, the best player you played against? Oh, uh, a variety. Um, uh, Warren Barton wasn't bad. Uh, and um, Former Newcastle, Wimbledon. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, Paddy Creran uh, I play, okay. played against Stevie, I remember playing with Stevie Koppel wow. um, and I, I played with Bobby Chart my claim my, my greatest right. my greatest sporting moment and it is on vid if people want, you know, <laughs> want to challenge this we were playing a match at Old Trafford for the Berry Hospice uh, against Coronation Street and Brookside All-Stars and um, Bobby Charlton played with us Paddy Cranon played with the All-Stars and at a certain stage of the game, Bobby Charlton took a free kick, dropped it onto onto me, uh, and I took it took it on the thigh, brought it down the edge of the penalty area, <laughs> inside the penalty area, tucked it past Phil Middlemas, who was in goals, Coronation Street, uh, and scored. Okay. And so Bert, you know, Bert won Old Trafford, uh, assist Bobby Charlton. Right. Yeah. A moment that will be seared on anybody's memory. Yes. That's it. You're done. I scored well, a goal at Wembley, and I thought at that stage my life was done. All I ever wanted on my tombstone was MP for Berry and scored a goal at Wembley and Old Trafford. Um, you know, life's ambition was done at 36. I'm going to drag us back to politics for the, for the last, <laughs> last few minutes. But in terms of... 
This is just the early years. We'll, yeah, have, we'll, to, we'll <laughs> have to go on to the final. It's going to be a vol- volume two. Well, this is where I was going to go to because in uh, was it two thousand and ten you first became minister yes. for the Foreign Office. David Cameron, um, God bless him. Yes. So this this was and this took this was was this your first experience of doing foreign affairs um, in Parliament? Yes, because I'd always done domestic stuff. Yeah, I'd done. Um, uh, a DSS uh, for, for John Major and that was low income benefits, poverty so you can see a complete chain going back to my early time in Parliament Minister for Disabled People uh, and in opposition I'd done regeneration uh, uh, city regeneration I'd been sponsor minister for Manchester mm. for John Major as well so I'd always done domestic things You know, if you want, if you want a Tory to go and stand on a, on a drafty estate you know, in an anorak and chat to people. I, I did it and because I've, I've always done it and that's yeah. me. So I never expected to be offered something like the Foreign Office. And you seem to be minister for about half the world at the time, which include North Middle America, East. South Asia and Middle East and North Africa. It uh, was just fab. Did you spend most of the time in the air? Uh, quite a lot. Right. Because I think we had it, we had the coalition. Uh, and just, just a word to listeners, if I could have voted for the coalition in 2015, I'd have voted for the coalition. Right. It was a bloody good government. Yeah. I just say that as an aside. Um, anyway, it's stable government, so we had a chance to get ministers away yeah. because we, we got the first choice of time off from Parliament. And how do, you, how do you approach a job like that? Especially, I mean, specifically given what was happening in the Middle East from 2011 onwards when you saw what was then called the Arab Spring okay. and the, the revolt against various... I think... Autocrats. I think I had the benefit of doing it, having done other things, having done other jobs. So I wasn't a kid going into the Foreign Office. Mm. I'd been a Minister of State under John Major. I had a certain seniority. I'd learned, I think, what it was to be a minister. Um, I had a secure constituency. By then, I was in North East Bedfordshire. My majority was very high. I wasn't being pursued every week and needing to be doing everything. So I knew I could take the time. Um, and I was old enough and sensible enough to know that it, it repaid real genuine graft and study. I also knew uh, by instinct that the people who worked in the Foreign Office were good and accordingly as a new minister you listened. You listened to these people, you learnt your job and you worked hard and then you applied your common sense knowing that you would be you know, the job of a minister is to make decisions mm-hmm. it isn't to be a civil servant like the civil servant. It isn't to know as much as the people who will come to you with their knowledge. It is to know enough about what is being discussed that when you are asked to make a decision, you can make a decision confidently uh, and appropriately. So you had to work hard, but recognise you were in an environment where you had access to the best quality information in the world. Mm. And, And your part of the job was to make the decisions, but you were part of a whole. And... I think I wouldn't have known that in the same way if I'd not had the previous experience. And, I mean, how did it feel, given the, the, the Arab Spring going on at the time, did you get a sense... Well, how did it feel then and how does it feel now? Because you're obviously also involved in what happened in Libya and the, the subsequent votes that, you know, voting... The, the, the intention yes. to do stuff in Libya and then sort of uh, a reticence to do, to do much more. So you were at the heart of a lot yeah. of very difficult political decisions in government. Well, I mean, there was so much going on then. I mean, I was, I was conscious from a pretty early stage that what was happening was fundamental. Um, and again, another claim to fame, I was standing with, uh, with Hillary Clinton at, the, uh, at a conference in Doha uh, uh, in January 2011, and we were watching television together, uh, and we were watching what was happening in Tunisia. Mm. And we both sort of said to each other, this isn't usual. This is this is different. Something's going on here that's different. And she was about to make a really good speech, talking about um, you know uh, shifting sands. She was about to make a speech to Arab states, saying, you know, y- you've got things you've got to improve on, mm. and things that have got to change. Otherwise, um, th- there is going to be upheaval uh, in in your areas. And she was dead right. Um, and so I knew at the time something quite fundamental is going on and I held then as I held now as I hold now that there were certain things that were uh, that we see echoes of that were absolutely right 2011 was not an Islamist hijack it was not western inspired it was about people who were coming to realize 
that uh, their system of governance wasn't as good as it could be, wanting more of a say in government and working in situations where conditions were becoming intolerable. And they all were able to communicate with each other much easily. Um, I, I, people said it was, a, it was a smartphone revolution or something like that because you could communicate and get mm-hmm. people into Tahrir Square. And I always said it wasn't so much that, it was an Al Jazeera revolution. Because Al Jazeera, starting a decade earlier, had been the first station in the region to put Arab leaders under the sort of questioning that we all take for granted. Mm-hmm. Because by and large, at the time, most state broadcasters were in the Mr. Macmillan, is there anything you would like to say to the British people yeah. tonight yeah. sort of mode. And you didn't publicly challenge a minister uh, and give them a rough time. Al Jazeera started to ask the questions. A public found this and said, why don't we ask questions here? Yeah. And the, the poor man, Mohammed Bouazizi, who was... Uh, the man who set himself on fire in Tunisia, he wasn't a political protester. He was objecting to the fact that he couldn't run his vegetable stall because of petty bureaucracy and regulations. And when a local government worker slapped him in the face, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. And so much of what people were out on the streets for were absolutely basic things. They wanted better standard of education, more of a say in their government, and they wanted jobs. Uh, and it, for all sorts of reasons, um, uh, the awful tragedies in Libya and Syria, what happened in difficulties in Egypt, Yemen, um, echoes died away, but they're back. Mm. Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq, they're being handled differently. Algeria is fascinating because the state has not cracked down on long protests and the government has changed and... I met a new minister the other week. He's a former journalist who's now the minister for mines and the economy. That mm. would never have happened. So people have learnt good lessons as well as poor lessons. But this is, a, this is an earthquake working its way through. Mm. I was conscious that I was in on something really, really interesting. And that, to round it all off, is one of the reasons also where, why when I left Parliament, I thought I've got a few working years where I can stay engaged mm. with this fascinating part of the world as well as being engaged at home. And I want to do this. And I think now, after all the years I've been an MP, this is what I want to spend my last few years on. Yes. And, I mean, just to explain, I mean, you were obviously minister until 2013 and then did other ministerial jobs and then came back to the Foreign Office in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But this is clearly a part of the world that that you have a great affinity for now. And uh, do you feel... I mean, I'm sort of asking you a question that you just answered, but do you feel optimistic about, about, the, about the region? Do you feel that things are shifting in the right direction? I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that, because I think the honest truth is you can see optimism in some places and despair in others. Mm. Um, it, it, you get a sense that people know some of the things they ought to be doing, but vested interests are incredibly deep. Um, what has upset me most about working in the region over the years has been the lack of tolerance, the fact that for one reason or another, tolerating others has slipped away. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a believer, um, but my faith has always uh, taught me that whatever I think about my own faith, it does not give me any rights to damage other people because of theirs or reject them because of their faith or anything else that isn't the way here and all sorts of things that have sprung in recent decades that have changed the nature of religious discourse here squeezed tolerance out of it and enabled people to do almost anything to people who are uh, both religious as well as political opponents has been shocking and damaging and societies are facing a real challenge as to the influence of um, particularly harsh attitudes to faith on politics and everything in the region. Outsiders can't do anything about this. This will take time Mm. to work through. This is not for us. But we have to stand very clear on certain values and work with others to to make them come through. In places where that's working, and you can see states that are ahead of the game, I I am optimistic. There's places where it must still be very, very dark, and it it will take time. You know, societies are not the same. Peoples have not developed in the same way. And you can't automatically assume that a certain set of values, you know, when a gavel is banged at the United Nations, suddenly everybody thinks the same way. It takes time and effort, and you've got to support local 
politicians and listen to regional voices as they go through these things and stand with them. And it's clear you're going to continue to try and do that in one guise or another. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I, I love the region. Um, I think there are great people here. And I think outsiders can't make decisions for people, but we can help find pathways where people can make decisions for themselves. And sometimes it is easier to use an intermediary than to get into direct contact and direct talks. And if, if those of us who've come from states where we have a history, and although the history of the United Kingdom in this region is not spotless, that's known and understood. Nobody's got it perfect. But our knowledge and awareness is, is pretty important. And if we handle it with a degree of humility uh, and use that expertise and work with people, maybe we do have a role to play to help it move on. And it's rapidly expanding young population who are not going to live as they have in the past. And either they will find their states changing and being the states they want to live in, or they're going to go. Mm. And that would be a tragedy. Alistair, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. We will be back in two weeks' time. I would love to be able to tell you who we're talking to then, but I'm not entirely sure. It could be one of two or three different politicians, but whoever it is, it will be interesting. Trust me. And on that note, if there are people you would like us to talk to in the UK or internationally, politicians with interesting stories to tell about how they became politicians and their life in politics, we would love to hear from you through all the usual channels, through the website, through email, Instagram, Twitter, you name it, we've got it. Anyway, let us know. Look forward to talk to you again in two weeks' time. Bye. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpcovenants.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online. Thanks for listening.